a deadly and dangerous storm, and a tense political climate. This could be the deadliest hurricane in Florida's history. Hurricane Ian batters Florida and makes landfall again. President Biden declares a major disaster for Florida and the state still in Ian's path. You got people's lives at stake. You got their property at stake. We don't have time for pettiness. We got to work together. But as the midterms near, how long can partisanship be put aside? Meanwhile, overseas, Russian President Vladimir Putin brings Ukrainian territory under Russian control illegally and says he would defend the brazen land grab with a veiled nuclear threat. Plus, Ginny Thomas, right-wing activist and wife of Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas, meets with the January 6th committee. Key thing to do is to claim victory. No, we won. F*** you. Sorry, over. We won. You're wrong. F*** you. New stunning video of Trump ally Roger Stone calling for violence days before the 2020 election. Next. This is Washington Week. Good evening and welcome to Washington Week. This evening, millions of Americans remain impacted by one of the worst disasters in Florida's history. Hurricane Ian unleashed 150 mile per hour winds and unprecedented flooding. And as Ian continues its devastating path, a state of emergency has been issued in four other states. Georgia, Virginia, and the Carolinas. The storm has leaders putting party politics aside, at least for now. Florida's governor, Republican Ron DeSantis, and President Biden are keeping in touch on the state's recovery. He said, you know, all hands on deck, that he wants to be helpful. And he said, you know, ask whatever you need, ask us. This is about saving people's lives, homes, and businesses. I've talked to him four or five times already. And it's not a matter of my disagreements with him on other items. But with the midterm elections less than six weeks away, political television ads continue to air in Florida. Demings voted with Pelosi to allow radical abortions even at the moment of birth. But Marco, you've got one of the worst attendance records in the Senate. He's been very strong on safety. He's been very strong on law and order. Maybe it's time you had a governor focused on you. But Ron DeSantis is dividing Florida. Joining me tonight in studio, all four of them, to discuss this and more, Yasmin Abutalib, White House reporter for The Washington Post, David Sanger, White House and national security correspondent for The New York Times, Ryan Riley, justice reporter for NBC News, and Eugene Daniels, White House correspondent and co-author of Political Playbook, and some breaking news for Eugene. From 2024 to 2025, he will be the president of the White House Correspondents Association. So congratulations so much, Eugene. Um, And since you're president now, of course, we're going to start with you because why not? (laughs) Only fair. Um, It's only fair. So, of course, Hurricane Ian has forced President Biden and Ron DeSantis, two people who have criticized each other, to work together. Tell me what what your reporting has revealed about their efforts to try to actually respond to this hurricane, but also the political calculations here. Yeah, because one thing that is really important to President Biden is to make sure he is seen as a president for all people. We've heard him say that since he was running for the presidency. And so being able to put aside their kind of petty differences or the big differences that they have between each other and the... Um, knife throwing that has been happening for months and months and will continue at some point. Putting that aside is what, you know, every aide talks about when you ask them um, how the president feels about what's going on right now. And I will say, um, 
that will go away at some point, right? Um, President Biden at some point is probably going to go to Florida. He's probably going to have to talk to and be seen with uh, the governor. And will we get a moment like in 2012 when President Obama kind of hugged Chris Christie? And a lot of people looked at that as, you know, this was the hug that launched a re-election campaign um, or cemented President Obama's re-election. Probably not. Um, but they do need to be seen as doing that. And it, I think from the American people, it's good to see that Politicians can put aside the nastiness at some point. What about the political risk here for, for Ron DeSantis? What do you think he risks in being seen as possibly too friendly with President Biden? This is what happened with Chris Christie, right? One of the things that people criticized him for, something that Romney was a little upset with Chris Christie about, is you have to walk this line of thanking them for the money and the resources, but also still making it clear that you don't like them. <laughs> it's it's a it's an odd place to be as a governor, but that is something that he's going to have to do. So far, and you saw say it, you know, that this isn't a time for pettiness. This is a time for people's lives and lives and lives livelihood are at stake. Um, and that's probably going to continue. That's the best way to, to handle these types of situations. And David, talking about sort of odd places to be and sort of odd places to find yourself, we have to point out that as a freshman congressman in 2013, Republican Ron DeSantis, he opposed aid for victims of Hurricane Sandy. He's now in a position where he's had to reverse the idea of aid for places that are, are hit by hurricanes. What do you make of this change in stance from the governor? Well, all politics are local, and it sounds like there was a time for pettiness, and it was 2013, <laughs> right? Uh, you'll remember that Hurricane Sandy came up right through New York, right up through uh, the New England states. It was pretty devastating all the way around. And um, you didn't hear the same kind of, uh, we all need to work together. You heard a, well, they should, you know, terribly sorry that happened, but not a, not a use for federal funds. So I think in some ways this plays to, to Biden and the sort of bipartisan look, because if he does show up down in Florida, and I'm sure he will, at the, and the two of them are together, it's going to be pretty clear that um, one of them is is doing this despite the differences and that DeSantis sort of stands out here. And, and yes, we, we, we played the political ads. Um, it shows sort of in some ways that the midterms are still top of mind for people as they're running, even as they're, it's, even as they're responding to the hurricane. What's your reporting about the White House strategy on midterms? And also, what do you make of these political ads running, given sort of what's at stake for both of these parties? I mean, I think, you know, we're five or six weeks out from the midterms, which is probably why the ads are still running in Florida. And Florida has a, a number of very, very tight, closely watched races, not least of which is Governor Ron DeSantis, who, you know, everyone thinks is, is perhaps using this to launch a potential 2024 presidential bid. Um, uh, in terms of the White House, we've seen President Biden become much more aggressive in his messaging over the last couple of weeks. He sort of came in saying, we can't attack Republicans too harshly because that'll alienate people. But you've seen him say, okay, well, the time has passed for that. And he tries to make this distinction between MAGA Republicans and the Republicans he says he can work with. Of course, you have members of the GOP saying, well, Biden is calling us all fascists now. Uh, but he has become much more aggressive in his messaging. So you've seen the president use political events to, to hammer home this message of Republican MAGA Republicans pose a threat to democracy, a, a threat to rights like abortion, and then to use his sort of more standard presidential events to tout the infrastructure law or the Inflation Reduction Act. But he has become 
much more aggressive, and you've seen a number of Democrats across the country adopt his messaging. And speaking of aggressive messaging, Ryan, law and order, crime, that was part of the political ads. You told our reporters the GOP is possibly trying to have it both ways. Tell us a little bit about the politics of this. I know your beat obviously has to deal with crime and national security. Yeah, I mean, you know, you've seen a lot of these Republican attacks on the FBI, which don't sort of line up with what you see Republicans trying to run on. They're trying to make get this all about law and order, but then at the same time, they're attacking the FBI. You know, they've got a number of conservatives within the FBI who are basically running to Republican Congress people and, and, and telling these stories and basically saying that they're thinking that people are being too tough on January 6th defendants. And, you know, a lot of these January 6th cases are pretty open and shut in terms of crimes on video. It's not very difficult to prove many of them. A lot of the people filmed themselves committing crimes and posted about that publicly online. It's pretty easy layup cases to make. And the idea that you shouldn't charge these individuals is, is sort of, I think, outside of, uh, outside, of the main, uh, outside of the main here, but it's what some of these people within the FBI have been, have been saying. And I should, you know, the FBI is a generally conservative leaning organization, which is something we've lost in the past six years. Like the, there's this ongoing beat against the FBI, but if you look at the filters that go into the FBI and you look at the backgrounds of the folks that go into there and just generally law enforcement overall, it's a conservative-leaning organization. So I think that's something we should keep in mind despite all these attacks that we see from uh, Republicans. And an, uh, it's interesting that you talk about sort of the prosecutions because your Twitter feed reminds me every day <laughs> just exactly um, how how important January 6th is and, and what these sort of blatant crimes, frankly, were that people committed and that they're being found guilty of. Um, we're going to talk a little bit more about January 6th and all of that, but I have to also, while we're talking about what's going on stateside, there's also some stuff that are really dangerous um, on abroad. President Biden is dealing with a dangerous situation. Russian President Vladimir Putin has now annexed four Ukrainian territories into Russia by holding a sham referendum to claim it was the will of the people. Putin says he will defend the new territories with the veiled threat of nuclear force. The actions are leading to increased fears of a full-blown conflict between Russia and the West. So, David, I'm so happy that you're at this table because there's, you know, there's so much to talk about when it comes to Russia. And every week we're like, here's possibly a new nuclear threat. I'm a little worried. How concerned is the Biden administration and your sources when you talk to them about, the, about this, these actions by President Putin? Well, they're concerned. Uh, they're more concerned than they were at the beginning of the war. At the beginning of the war, we went into this thinking, okay, Putin's got all kinds of normal military options ahead of him to take over Ukraine. And of course, he couldn't take over Ukraine. And then he's having a hard time holding the territory down in the south and the east. And that's why people are worried more now than they were before. Because if he can't rely on his conventional military force, if he has been humiliated by the fact that they're being run out, he's going to have to think more about what are his other options. And they are a fewfold. Obviously, unconventional weapons, sabotage. We're still trying to figure out who it was who was responsible for sabotaging the uh, Nord Stream 1 and 2 pipelines this week. Uh, but there is, there are some good theories out about why it may play to Russia's interest. We're not certain that, in fact, they were responsible. There are chemical weapons or biological weapons. But what Putin keeps coming back to is saying, we have nuclear weapons and don't forget about it. And today, what did he say? He said, well, Hiroshima and Nagasaki, they were the American decision. You were the ones who first used nuclear weapons and you set a precedent doing it. Wow. Wow. Um, I also want to ask you, 
in, in response to what Russia's been saying, Ukraine is now saying, hey, NATO, please let us in. They've been saying that for a while. I wonder what you make of, of the sort of ability, possibly, the, the, the potential for Ukraine to possibly be let into, U, into, into NATO, especially when I was looking today. It was a reminder that Finland and Sweden, their applications are moving through. Their applications are not only moving through, they're moving through fast. And um, I saw the president of Finland when he was uh, here uh, earlier uh, this week. And, um, you know, he thinks that they're probably, they could well be in by the end of the year, maybe the beginning of next. But Finland and Sweden were easy cases, right? They, uh, they're established democracies and so forth. Ukraine's always been a hard case. It's a hard case in part uh, because there's still a lot of corruption. They're a pretty nascent democracy. But also because once they're in, all the other NATO members know that they are then committed to direct conflict with Russia because nobody is accepting that these four provinces are now Russian territory. Only the Russians are saying that. And there's really nobody's lined up behind them. And so if the rule here is let's stay out of direct conflict between the United States and NATO and Russia, once they were in NATO, you're in direct conflict. And I think no one's really ready to take that step yet. Yeah. Well, the other thing that, Yasmin, you've been reporting on is that the White House and the Biden administration, they have new sanctions out um, because of what Russia has done here. Um, what's your sense of why they think these sanctions are going to be different, given the fact that we have seen the Biden administration put sanctions on Russia in the past? I think they've the, this round really targeted a number of individuals, a number of people close to Putin. Um, they've said they think individually targeted sanctions can be effective. Um, I don't know that it's going to make a, a huge difference in the overall picture of the war and the economic picture in Russia and across Europe. But I think they're trying to send a signal to Russia. And um, Biden's national security advisor, Jake Sullivan, today said the point of the sanctions is basically to just keep reducing Russia's ability to carry out a war like this and to carry out other conflicts, invade other neighbors, and just make it very hard for them. They also targeted companies that have helped with Russia's military supply. Um, and, and then, of course, they said that the U.S. was sending a warning uh, in, with support from G7 countries, which was anyone that aided Russia or supported them in their annexation was going to face severe consequences. So I think this is more um, symbolic. This was obviously um, a, a move with little modern precedent from Vladimir Putin. And I think, you know, you saw them targeting uh, members of the Russian military who have been um, accused of, of human rights violations and torturing prisoners of war. Um, and I think they're just trying to reduce Russia's capability to carry out the war as best as they can. We're kind of sanctioned out at this point. I mean, yeah. you know, <laughs> yeah. uh, I was say David, jump in here. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the sanctions are very interesting. I think the most effective ones are the, are the export controls, which are making it hard for uh, the Russian military to build new uh, equipment. It's going to make it hard for consumer electronics to be made and sold in, uh, in Russia. But the fact of the matter is that most of the sanctions are coming from the Western democracies. China, India, many other nations, Southeast Asia, they're really sort of hanging out on the sidelines. And if you're really going to isolate Russia, it's got to be everyone in. Yeah. Um, the other thing, of course, that's going on here is that there are political storms brewing in this country. This week, the committee investigating the January 6th Capitol attack postponed its public hearing scheduled for Wednesday. But on Thursday, Jenny Thomas, a right-wing activist and the wife of Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas, testified before the committee behind closed doors for more than four hours. She was asked to meet with the committee about her multiple conversations with White House aides, Trump allies, and state Republican election officials in support of 
overturning the 2020 election results. The committee has been also given new video of Trump ally Roger Stone. In the days surrounding the 2020 election, Stone is heard advocating for violence and sharing his plan to overturn the election results. The election will not be normal. Oh, these are the California results? Sorry, we're not accepting them. We're challenging them in court. If the electors show up at the, at the Electoral College, armed guards will throw them out. I'm the president. F you. I'm challenging all of it, and the judges we're going to are judges I appointed. So, Ryan, clearly you're at the table for this entire <laughs> section. Um, I want to start with Jenny Thomas, because... Benny Thompson has said that she told the committee, we know very few details of what she told the committee, but he made clear that she still believes the 2020 election was stolen. What more do we know about what she said? And what's the significance of the fact that she's even still saying that? Yeah, I know. I think that this is one of those cases where the DOJ and uh, the congressional investigation sort of depart in some ways, because there's not enough evidence right now for you to really run a criminal investigation necessarily against uh, Ginny Thomas. And I would say, you know, if they were going to go that route, if they were going to, you know, potentially pursue something along those lines, if you're going after the wife of a Supreme Court justice, you're going to want to dot your I's, cross your T's, double check your math, <laughs> so on and so forth, before you would go down that line. I think that this is, because of her position, is really why she's come into focus by the committee here. You know, she has the ear of one of the Supreme Court justices. What were they talking about? The, the, uh, what they've claimed is that there's sort of a wall in their relationship, that they don't, they don't talk about any of these things. But, you know, I don't know. That, that's going to have to be for folks to decide whether or not, uh, you know, a husband and wife can absolutely bar anything, these ongoing major things that they're talking about completely. Um, but, you know... This doesn't really get into the realm of, of criminality necessarily. I think that it's certainly damaging politically and doesn't you know, look great, certainly, for a Supreme Court justice's wife to be involved in all of these efforts to overturn an ongoing uh, election. But you know, it doesn't rise quite to the level of criminality yet, which is why it's something you see the committee pursuing uh, more aggressively at this moment than you see DOJ. One of the and doesn't look great is, the, is, is <laughs> one way to put this, Eugene. Yeah. Um, that doesn't yeah. look great. There are other people who say right. Roger Stone sitting yeah. on a couch saying, maybe we just get violent to, to, to steal right. the 2020 election. Maybe that doesn't look great either. Your right. thoughts? I mean, the, the thing I think that's so interesting about Ginny Thomas is that she she kind of goes against all the stereotypes that a lot of us in D.C. have of who would believe that the election was stolen, people that would kind of be like, yes, do mm -hmm. what happened on January 6th. This is someone who we would say is well-educated, someone who has the most connections that you could possibly have, right? Texting the chief of staff at the time, husband is a Supreme Court justice. And so I think them bringing her in is a reminder to everyone that, no, the thought that someone can believe these lies and these conspiracy theories, it goes beyond socioeconomic status or education. It's something that's deeper. And it will. It's a, and you look at Roger Stone as another example, this isn't leaving the Republican Party anytime soon when these types of folks who have all of this power and this influence are also believing and pushing these. You know, that I think that makes a really good point because so, like, so many people in D.C., I think Republicans just don't actually believe this stuff, right? right? right. And there's this mix of people, but Jenny Thompson is someone who actually believes this stuff, right. right? She's on those Facebook boards. She's reading that nonsense online. She actually died in the wool believes this stuff, as opposed to a lot of Republicans who are just saying this because this is what they need to do to play to their base. And Ryan, I'll ask you, you also had a scoop this week on the Oath Keepers trial because there's so much January 6th stuff going on. Um, tell us about your scoop and tell us about how all of this is somewhat connected. 
Yeah, so you know, so there's this uh, there's a woman named Kelly Sorrell, uh, and she is the general counsel for the Oath Keepers. Uh, she's only recently been charged within the past month, in fact, in connection with January 6th, faces four different charges, was on the grounds of the Capitol that day uh, with uh, the head of the Oath Keepers, Stuart Rhodes. Um, what's also interesting about uh, Kelly Sorrell is that she's actually, um, she's been, <laughs> she's was involved in uh, the lawyers for Trump during the 2020 election, and she was in Detroit working for the Trump campaign during this uh, during that time and she developed contacts within the White House and so you know I've been talking to her for a while and uh, we scooped this week I ended up calling up uh, Andrew Giuliani and it turned out that yes they were in communication right after uh, the 2020 election so that's pretty close connection in terms of the overlap between this this legal effort so-called quote-unquote legal effort to overturn the election uh, versus this actual violent overthrow mm -hmm. of the election she's sort of that grip that puts those two things together we're going to find out a lot more in this upcoming trial over the next five weeks about those connections uh, between the oath keepers and the white house and yeah i mean how's the president trying to just navigate all of this he clearly wants the doj to remain independent but this is obviously part of all the midterms it's what everyone's talking about threats to democracy in polls or, or voters are saying that that's a, a key concern of theirs what are you hearing i mean i think he's very careful to not get anywhere near the DOJ piece of it, the investigation, he's made very clear it's an independent agency. But you have seen him use the January 6 hearings in his messaging. And you saw him really ramp up his rhetoric about the threats he believes Republicans pose to democracy, um, you know, pointing to, to some of the evidence revealed in the January 6 hearings. I don't think he can ignore it. Yeah. And, and I know from talking to people in the White House that he started to feel in the spring it would just be irresponsible if he didn't address this, if he didn't address this extremist wing of the Republican Party that now he believes has really become the mainstream of the Republic, Republican Party or at least taken it over. Donald Trump is still the leader of the party. He still very much has a hold on it and this election denying January 6 mentality yeah. is is part of the mainstream Republican Party right now and Eugene what do what do we know about the next January 6 committee hearing um, Benny Thompson says there's not going to be any witnesses but that there's going to be significant information it's not going to be next week he says <laughs> what, what else do we know yeah I mean the thing that they've said is it's going to um, be overarching it's not going to be as specific as some of these other hearings that we've seen we've seen but that's kind of it you know they are very good at, at keeping things secret which is really annoying to all of us <laughs> when we're trying to do our jobs but I think you know they're running out of time to, to for this last hearing they're running against the wall which is the midterms and the possible flip from the house Republicans are not going to investigate yeah. January 6th in the same way um, and so they have to put a bow on this in some way. And I, you know, when you talk to folks behind um, that committee, they say that is something they're going to end up doing. This is kind of their last-ditch effort in that. The closer they get to the, to the midterm elections, the more political this effort looks. Right. You know, yeah. What was most effective was when they had the witnesses, they had Republicans who were in the room or Trump mm -hmm. aides who were in the room testifying. Yeah. That was that was pretty pretty effective. Not having them there is a harder trick. And Ryan, last question to you, which is there's obviously all this back and forth with the classified docs. That is still moving through. What's the latest there? Sure, actually, just tonight, DOJ has asked uh, the appeals court to expedite their appeal of this because the uh, the Trump appointed judge uh, Eileen Cannon has really sort of given everything that Trump has wanted and then more in terms of um, what uh, you know of how, how this investigation is handed. Even though Donald Trump asked for the special master, she gave him the special master. Donald Trump. Uh, 
um, said, hey, I'd like these two people to be special, one of these two people to be special master, she gave it to him. Then when that special master actually tried to do his job and tries to hold Donald Trump's feet to the fire, potentially, when he's making all these out-of-court statements about, you know, FBI planning evidence at his, uh, at Mar-a-Lago, potentially, and, and all the judge asked to do was say, okay, is this, is this list accurate? The judge uh, who was uh, in charge, you know, the judge shut down the special master on that thing. So I think DOJ uh, doesn't like the way this is going, wants to expedite the court, because before, essentially, the, the, the appeals court, which included two Trump-appointed judges, sort of smacked down what that ruling said. So I think that they're going to go back and, and say, hey, let's speed this up, because I think they're going to get a good ruling from uh, the appeals court there again. So DOJ really wants to put the pedal to the metal and get that, I think, overturned more broadly soon. And a quick question in 10 seconds. Um, is this backfiring? Is the special master backfiring on yes. Trump? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> if the special master is allowed to do their job, it will uh, it will backfire on Trump. Okay. Well, <laughs> Brian, with that quick answer, it was so nice to have you all around the table. I'm so happy to be here with all of our friends and all of our guests. So thank you for all for coming here. Thank you for sharing your reporting. And don't forget, you all of you at home, to watch PBS News Weekend on Saturday. Anchor Jeff Bennett gets the latest on Hurricane Ian and the recovery from the storm. And finally, my heart, of course, is with all of those impacted by the storm, including those in my native state of Florida. Thank you for joining us. I'm Yamish Alcindor. Good night from Washington. <laughs>